0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Jeff Geerling. Jeff is an experienced full-stack developer who creates websites and applications for organizations ranging from small businesses to large enterprises. Based in St. Louis, Missouri, he is involved in a number of open-source development communities and maintains the Drupal VM project at drupalvm.com. Jeff also blogs, writing on various sites, including his personal website, lifeisaprayer.com, and he is also a photographer whose pictures have been used in news publications, documentaries, and various places on the web. He currently works as a technical architect at Acquia, a cloud platform for building, delivering, and optimizing digital experiences. Jeff is the author of the LeanPub book, Ansible for DevOps, Server and Configuration Management for Humans. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jeff's professional interests and his experience writing and self-publishing a LeanPub bestseller. So, thank you, Jeff, for being on the Lean Publishing podcast. Thank you, Lan. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me how you first became interested in being a developer and how you ended up in with your particular specialties and and, and interests.
1: Yeah, I I like telling people about it because, and I, I love hearing also from from other episodes of this podcast, other people's stories because it's so amazing in our field uh, of basically anything technical how how varied people's backgrounds are. Um, when I was growing up, my dad worked for a radio station, uh, actually a set of radio stations as an engineer here in St. Louis. And so he would bring me to work sometimes. And I, I got the opportunity to, uh, learn kind of right as, as the internet was becoming a thing, uh, the radio industry was picking it up and, and they had a lot of local networking and they started connecting their offices together and they started needing more IT operations. and uh, basically, I went from a guy who liked playing games on an old Macintosh to a guy who had experience with Novell and microsoft and and uh, early linux based networking in the course of a few years uh, when I was just barely able to work uh, so um, he He let me kind of you know work on different projects that he had there he helped He helped me to build computers until the point where I could build them, and I started selling computers and Um, I was helping schools and and organizations with their networking and with their server setup, and uh, eventually that all led into being able to do some some early web development, back when it was using like Claris Homepage to build yourself a web page and sticking a picture in there, that kind of stuff. And uh, I actually had a website uh, with some pictures of mine on it, and I think it was 1996 at an IP address somewhere. I don't remember where it was. Uh, but it was on an old Interjet. So I got into um, networking and computers, mostly from the hardware side. That was my fascination back then. Uh, And then as time went on, I I went to seminary. I was studying to become a priest, actually. And when I found that that wasn't for me, I was still doing stuff with computers at that point and and learning a little bit of programming. And uh, after getting a degree in philosophy, I started getting into Drupal, which is an open-source CMS uh, for building websites. And I just so happened to get into it at a good time where uh, the field of, of kind of turning the web into uh, content-driven uh, websites that all interacted with each other, uh, Drupal was hot at that point, And I kind of just hitched my, hitched my ride on that bandwagon and, and started learning a lot more about Drupal. Um, and then, as time went on, I also was getting more interested again in infrastructure and building building uh sites and and uh, high availability environments on the cloud and so as time went on, and I did shell scripting and I learned some puppet and I learned some other configuration management tools and systems, uh ansible came along right at the right time for me because i I needed to grow some of the sites that I helped with a lot bigger. And once you get beyond a couple servers, you need tools to, to interact with the services that you use and automate everything. And Ansible in 2012 uh, was introduced and I got into it early 2013. And at that time, there's no book on it or anything like that. So I decided I'll start blogging on it. Uh, and then the rest is history. The blog turned into a few chapters of a book and a few chapters of the book turned into a LeanPub project. And now I'm here today with this book and Uh, a lot of involvement in both Ansible and Drupal communities.
0: And um, you have a particular interest in open source projects. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe tell about your first experience with an open source project and and how you became interested in that.
1: Yeah, I I actually, I've been involved in a few here and there, uh, smaller open source projects, uh, and I've used Linux for anything server related for years, so um, but but I never really got involved in communities that much. I read the The cathedral and the bazaar uh, and that got me interested in the whole idea of the movement of open source and i wouldn't call myself a purist uh, by any means but i do appreciate the value of having your work be open and free and available uh, free as in beer and so uh, when i got into drupal and i noticed that the community had such a strong base of like smart people working together there was no real boundaries of like You know, you didn't have to be a certain type of person or you didn't have to do certain things. You just had to have an interest in making Drupal better and people would accept that. Uh, I found that to be awesome in that community. And I can't say that every community has that, but a lot of the open source software communities do have that kind of atmosphere, which I love. uh, Because you get to work with such varied backgrounds and you get to do things that you're interested in. Uh, and as long as it's something that's helping the project, you're going to have a, a future and you're going to get people to help you and you'll be able to help other people. Uh, so I, I really got involved in Drupal first. Uh, and, and that community is huge. There's, I don't know, like fourteen or 1,600 people that helped with the Drupal 8 release that just is about to be released. If they're in uh release candidate stage right now. And Ansible also grew from when I started. There were maybe a hundred or so different people contributing to now there's twelve or thirteen hundred people contributing from a lot of different backgrounds, from big enterprises to little one man shops. It's
0: really cool. Yeah, you've um you've you've brought up uh the the fact that people can come to development from and to different open source projects from different backgrounds um a couple of times and it was actually something when I was reading your resume before when I was preparing for this interview, um of course I noticed that you have a background in philosophy and theology, which is relatively unusual, at least in my experience for for developers. Um, and um, this is slightly left field, but I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask someone with a background like that and with obviously deep you know, IT experience, um, what you think about recent developments in AI and the discourse around AI. Because we hear from people like Stephen Hawking or Elon Musk, um, but not necessarily from people who have a deep background in different subject areas, or I mean, that's a bit of a trivial way of putting it, but like like you do. Um, so I was wondering what your thoughts are, given your background in philosophy and theology on what's happening with AI and where it's going to go and what it means.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's especially relevant now that we're seeing things like Elon Musk announcing that, A, he we need to be cautious about AI, and B, all of his cars are now talking to each other and building up traffic networks and things like that. It's I think we're at an interesting moment where AI is not just science fiction, but we're seeing kind of small bits of it here and there being developed. Uh, and it might not be AI in the sense that something is going to take over the world and, and kill all the humans at this point, but it's it's already to the point where uh, we can create networks that evolve themselves and do things like fix themselves or build something entirely new, uh, but not to the point where you'd recognize it as human intelligence. So uh you know i i I have a a background uh where I believe that the ends don't justify the means uh, so i think in in my opinion it's it 's always about taking it as far as you can go, but also taking the time uh in all your research and and in, in things that you 're doing to make sure is this going to be supportive of of you know the the human race and the ability to uh, be a human and and really it all stems down to what do you believe it is to be human Uh, I could probably get into a long debate with uh, most of the people listening to this podcast because they're all technical people and technical people love getting into the detail uh, about you know morality and and, uh, what it is to be human and ethics and things like that Uh, but but it, it really comes down to making sure that you have some sort of morality that guides your decision-making. And I think whenever we run into problems, it's somebody who kind of mutes that part of their life because they're so interested in developing something further, going down a path. And I, you know, on the flip side, you need to go down those paths, but you need to use caution. And it seems that like every disaster in history is due to more hubris than anything else. The idea that we can kind of uh, take something further uh, without without worrying too much about the consequences because it's science, you know.
0: That that reminds me of one of the um, one of the potential consequences of AI. So I'm I'm sure that most people listening to this are probably familiar with the conventional understanding of the Turing test, um, where you know Alan Turing proposed this test that where if you're interacting with a machine and you can't tell if on the other end of this sort of like thing in between you and the thing you're interacting with um if it's a person or a machine then the, if it is a machine then you can't tell if it's a machine or a person then it's passed the turing test um and i've thought i wrote a blog post about this um from another direction a while ago but when i was um reading about you and on your blog i sort of thought that there's an interesting um, metaphor there for a priest being on you know one side of the confessional and not knowing who or in In this, in in potentially in the future, in this sense, sort of what is on the other side of that. And so, for example, in a in a more trivial way, if we actually have computers, whether they're actually thinking or not, if they're sophisticated enough that they can mimic people and we can't tell the difference, what do you do? Let's say in a customer service situation, or let's say on a nine one one call. there's, it seems to me there's a fundamental issue about how, and when you bring up, you know, what makes us human, if we're going to be in this very strange situation where we're relating to something that might or might not be a human, what kinds of decisions do we make about what to do? Especially if let's say we can get kind of a, you know, denial of service attack or something with all these things that actually look and sound like humans, but what do we do?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. I, it, it's it's one of those things that I you know I try to spend more time not thinking about it because of you know almost every road that my thoughts go down ends up in some sort of disastrous crazy end of the world scenario, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think it, it's a question that all of us in the tech industry have to ponder at least somewhat because I mean un- unless you have your head in the sand you see there there are advancements everywhere. Uh, you know, like the the robotics, uh, like the big dog. I Forget what lab it's from. Oh, but, uh, Boston Dynamics. Yeah, like their research. These these robots are being built that can do things and maneuver in ways that humans even can't. Uh, and you mix that up with the networking and the uh, kind of the brains that are being developed for other projects, and you you start thinking it's not going to be too hard to think of even if it's not full AI. Uh, what happens when somebody can change the algorithm that, that detects human versus uh, something else that needs to be uh, cleaned up or, you know, things like that. So it's, for me, I, I'm always just trying to think, is, is what I'm doing right now going to advance the human race? You know, I, I don't have that grandiose of a vision of this book, but, you know, in general, when I work on things, I just, you, you always have to pull back and make sure, is this something that matches up with with what I want the
0: future to be for me, for my family, for everyone. I know there's um, uh, just one last question on this, on this topic. Generally, Um, I know that there's a discourse amongst um, uh, sort of religious intellectuals, especially in the United States, about how um, the predominance of screens and the internet uh, is leading to a a form of isolation um, where people are not interacting with each other as it were in meat space as much as they used to be. And and there's a a sense that there's something about relating to these objects, even if there are people on the other end of them, that somehow distances us from other people. Um, Do you think that that's something that is happening and that it's something we need to be aware of? Because all of this technology and this way of relating to things is actually quite new. Um, Yeah,
1: I mean, it definitely is a a thing that is happening. and, And the question is, to me is, is it something that's bad, or is it an opportunity? And uh, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic, I'll disclose that here, but uh, um, both Pope John Paul II, uh, Pope Benedict, and even Pope Francis, uh, who are the, you know, the, the three most recent leaders of the Catholic Church, they've all seen this revolution coming, and, and it's interesting because each one had a different perspective on it, but all three um, first identified it as being something good, uh, and then they identified it as something that presents an opportunity for every individual uh, to kind of, you can use that to increase your relationship with someone, uh, or you can use it to close out your relationships with other people. And and it's really up to the individual, but also as developers, you know, we make these tools that can bring people together. Uh, but I, I think all three of them also emphasize the point that uh, real human interaction is important and and that 's why like you know all three of them also said when you have things like the sacraments in the church where you kind of come together as the church community uh, it 's important to have a physical presence because there 's something different between a physical presence with someone else and something through a screen or through an email or through text, that kind of thing uh, there's there 's something metaphysical uh, there that that just doesn 't happen. Um, and it, it, brings a, it brings up some interesting discussion because it's definitely, it, I, everybody sees it happening today. People sitting at the same dinner table, all of them on a the phone, none of them talking to each other, or even worse, everyone on the phone talking to each other at the dinner table um, with their phones instead of their, their voices. It, it's, it's a strange thing. And I think as a society, we're, we're dealing with it and uh, figuring out our best, best step forward at this point.
0: And when you speak about um, opportunity and looking at it with some optimism, um, is there anything in particular that you, you think of when you think about the opportunities for new forms of interaction that we're being presented with now or that we can develop in the near term?
1: Yeah, I, I, one, one thing especially that I see is people who have any kind of uh, mental delays or physical uh, problems that, that can interfere with their ability to interact some of these people already are seeing the benefit of they have these tools now that are so much cheaper than they used to be or that they didn't even exist 10 or 20 years ago uh, to allow them to communicate and be more personable with people. Uh, and and it's the same thing with science and drugs and, and medicine. Um, coming up with new, new ways that people can kind of combat, uh, combat situations and, and illnesses that have made them unable to to be part of like the human experience and, and have real deep human interaction. And again, there's always two sides to it. Uh, if, you, if you take somebody's, uh, what, what we call an illness that might also enable them to be somebody different, who they really need to be, you need to make sure that you're not just muting that part of them, uh, but you're expanding their abilities to interact and to be part of the human race.
0: So that, um, that reminds me of... Um... One time, actually, relatively recently, I was watching for research a documentary about the history of the computer that I think had been made in the early 90s. Um, and it included a, a, just an amazing scene that almost brought me to tears, actually, in which a bunch of young, young people are, um, in, uh, in front of computers and they're actually able to read books on their own for the first time because they were unable to hold them and turn, mm-hmm. turn pages. So reading was with a paper book was basically an impossibility for them. But now with when they could read on a screen and they could turn pages with voice commands, um, all of a sudden this whole world of, uh, human thought was open to them for the first time in, a, in an independent way. Um, and yeah, that's that just struck me as a really powerful way of sort of Using technology to increase people's ability to interact not only with other people but with you know people from the past and and with you know, our history
1: yeah and and a lot of it seems to come from the ability and and this desire for you know we, a lot of people have a lot of disdain for the the idea of capitalism, but in a sense uh some of the reasons why some of these technologies have been opening up people's lives, especially people who are, might not be as well off as, as, you know, the top 1% or whatever, uh, is that since these devices are now in the hands of all consumers and are becoming cheaper and cheaper, uh, devices that have what would be considered supercomputing abilities years ago, uh, we can now do, write software and put the software in the hands of everybody to do these things and to enable new interactions, especially for people who, uh, you know, like I said, 10 or 20 years ago, they would have to spend $50,000 or more to have a device to let them communicate. Now that's on your tablet in your pocket, you know, where you can, you can mount the tablet to a new uh, kind of, of uh mobile platform that you can use if you have a physical ability to get in places you never could before. It's, I mean, it, on one side, we see people sitting with their phones and, and blocking themselves out from other people. And on the on the other side, we see people with these phones that are opening up a whole new world and being able to converse online and converse in person even with other people.
0: Um, just circling back to um, to your book, um, you mentioned that it started out as a blog um, and eventually you decided to to turn it into a book. Was there any sort of particular moment? Like did someone ask you, this would be great if you wrote a book about this, or can you expand on this because it's really helping me do my work? It, it, it was for me mostly a personal goal. I,
1: I actually have been blogging since blogging regularly since about 2004, and probably around 2008 or 9, I started thinking, I really want to write a book someday. I have no idea what I want to write it about. But I want it to be something I'm passionate about and I'm interested in, and I feel like I could contribute something to people. And um, for for a long time, I've done a lot of technical documentation. Like I said, I I used to work with the local radio stations, and one of the projects I always would get texts with is, we have this new phone system, or we have this new whatever. Uh, Go sit down, sit through all the tutorials, and then write up a guide that will help people to quickly get up to speed on it. Because the manuals you get with the manufacturer are pretty much junk, you know. So, so I'd spent a lot of time doing technical writing and documentation. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time blogging. Um, you know, early on it was more about personal things and, and uh, religion, philosophy, those kind of things. But I, I started writing a little more about computing. And when I got into Drupal, I started doing more tutorial-type posts on here's how you do this and that, uh, documenting how to do certain um, things in Drupal that, that I didn't find were well documented, but you know, it, there's, there's one platform doc for documentation and then there's another platform for guiding people really. And I've I've seen books are usually the best way, at least for me, but also for a lot of other developers to get into a technology. Uh, so I think after I wrote four or five, 600 to 1,000 word blog posts on Ansible, uh, I realized I can keep doing these short posts that kind of are disjointed and uh, don't really guide somebody through things, but they they give somebody a few nuggets to kind of get started with. Um, and instead of continuing to do that, I wanted to write more of a comprehensive guide of your developer who might know a little bit of shell scripting and how to turn on a web server on in, in a cloud environment. Uh, I wanted to take that person and bring them through to, hey, it's not that hard to build an entire infrastructure with 50 servers in Amazon or in DigitalOcean or something like that. Uh, So I figured the best way to do that was a book. And so I took those blog posts, kind of uh, wrote a little introductory part to it, reorganized them. And that was the first uh, published edition, which at that moment, I said it was 30% of the book's completion when I first published it on LeanPub. Uh, little did I know that after those like 30 pages were published, I'd be writing another uh,
0: 370. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and how, how did you find out about LeanPub and why did you decide to use this? So I've, I've been on Hacker News for a while
1: and uh, I kept seeing every now and then somebody would post, hey, I have this new book and it's on LeanPub. And I'm like, that's interesting. And I heard of this LeanPub thing. And uh, a couple of them, I think it was actually right around the time where Node Node.js was getting popular. Uh, the Node, I forget, was it the Node Craftsman book or the Node, one of the Node books on mm-hmm. there? Yeah, Man- uh,
0: Manuel Kiesling, I think. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's it's one of the more popular books on LeanPub. I bought it on LeanPub and I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I bought the book. It wasn't finished, but it's already really high quality and I get the free updates forever. And there's no DRM, like, where's the catch? Uh, so it was really from a from a consumer perspective, as a technical person, I hate the idea of DRM on a book, because it's like, when I go to a bookstore and buy a book, I don't have like a locking mechanism that I have to unlock to read it. Uh, so I liked that aspect. And I liked the whole user experience of buying the book and getting updates. The author could communicate with me. Um, so it really attracted me to the platform. Uh, But that was probably six months to a year before I decided to start writing. And when I started writing, I looked into the options and it was basically LeanPub was awesome and everything else was like ancient history. Uh, You know, nowadays there's other there's like Gitbook and some other platforms you could write with, but LeanPub is still, from what I've seen, it's still the most like uh, actual publishing workflow friendly uh, tool out there. And I'm glad I've been sticking with it because it's uh, right now I'm working on actually publishing a printed copy of the book, and the whole process was basically scroll through a couple things, click a button, and you have the PDF, and you're done, uh, instead of having to reflow things and lay it out manually, all that kind of junk.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for that. Yeah, we worked, we worked hard with um, a few of our early adopter authors um, to build our print-ready output features. We have one for um, PDF, and we have one for um, InDesign as well, uh, which is a little less mature, Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a really important part of us. Uh, what we're doing is that, you know, we want people when they're kind of done, done their book to be able to hit a button and then have something ready to put up on create space, which I think you're using, um, or, or Lulu or, or something like that so that then they can do print. Um, I have a question about that. Why, why are you making a print book?
1: So one thing that I've realized, uh, for this book in particular, it's, it's more of a guide uh, for somebody who's never seen ansible before they can pick it up and by the end of it they'll be hopefully able to make their entire infrastructure and do everything automated so they're never logging into servers again for that kind of a guide i've had a lot of emails from people asking so when am when can i get a printed copy Uh, because they want to sit there and mark it up they want to dog ear some pages and have it in front of them while they're doing their work Uh, and that that workflow is is what a lot of people like for more of a guidebook, uh, you know. If if it's more of a it's more of a novel where it's it's a story about the software you're using, or you know, if it is actually a novel, a lot of people are more prone, I think, to get the ebook version. Uh, but there are some some developers who like to mark their book up and like to uh, kind of have that physical that physical interface a book has that so far no no kind of e reader can give. Um, and the other reason also is. Uh, I, I got started in web development through design, and so I'm a little bit more designer-oriented than developer-oriented, even though I don't do as much nowadays. Uh, so I really wanted to get a physical copy just so I could have it in my hands. It's kind of like a physical reminder. I actually just got a proof. The proof had some problems in it, so I'm going to get another one. But I got a proof, and it was so amazing uh, to know the two years of time that went into this book is in my hands. It's, it's like a tangible... It, it goes back a little bit to our conversation. You know, it's like when you have it in your hands, it's different than having a file. Uh, you, you know, you can flip through the pages that you spent so much time working on, uh, and and the coolest thing is with the feedback that I can get through Leanpub, it only takes a couple minutes to build a new copy, uh, so I can keep uh, uh, working on that physical printed book almost at the same rate that I can work on the uh, the online editions and the eBooks. Uh, through LeanPub and CreateSpace. It's, it's a lot better I think even now than it was a couple years ago when I started the book. I looked at the workflow back then and it would have been, it would have been a, a couple days worth of work just to do each new iteration. But now it, you know, it takes less than a day to take something you wrote uh, in a markdown file or latex and then get
0: uh, a proof to your doorstep. It's, it's pretty cool. So were you interacting a lot with readers while you were writing the book?
1: Yes, that that was the other thing that really got me into the book and, and turned it from 30 pages into 400 pages is uh, when I started the book, I put up a little page that said, I'm, I'm starting writing on this, sign up here uh, if you're interested. And I think I got like 40 or 50 people's email addresses. And that was already getting close to my goal. My goal was to sell 200 copies of the book. If I did that, I think I would have been pretty happy would have been fun, write like 80 or 90 pages, be finished with it. Uh, but I got 50 then. And then when I published the first version, which only had like 30 or 40 pages and only a couple introductory chapters, all of a sudden, uh, there were a couple hundred sales. And I was like, uh, I've already sold the quota that I set for myself. And I haven't even started the book barely, you know, uh, so that really motivated me to start writing more and giving a little more structure to the book. Once I did that, I started getting a lot of readers who were taking my examples and putting them in the situations I never would have thought of and being like, this broke, this broke, this broke. Uh, so really, they were being my QA and reviewers early on. And I, have, I even put a list of uh, the people who helped make the book better in the uh, afterword. Uh, if you get the print copy, it'll be in there. And it's actually up. I just updated it last night with that. Uh, but those people are awesome. They, a few of them even sent me... 10 or 20 emails throughout the writing the book that every time I'd put out a new chapter, they would sit through and find like every little detail. If when I, when I would have a grammatical error or whatever, and it was, it was awesome because that made my editorial process be a lot more of optimization rather than fixing my stupid grammar. You know,
0: that's fantastic. Um, I, I noticed you also include in your book, um, a change log, um, which I imagine won't be in the, in the print version. Um, is that something that, and so in your changelog, you, with, with each new version, you document what the sort of, you know, major changes were that you made and improvements and additions. Um, I was wondering if that was something that you think necessarily belongs in the book itself, or if, if LeanPub could provide a feature like that, would you prefer to have that over a changelog in the, that you manually create in the book itself?
1: I can go either way. I've, the thing that I liked about having it in the book itself was that somebody didn't have to refer somewhere else when they wanted to see what was new. It was also a good uh, kind of barometer for the readers to see what's been going on or has anything been going on because there were a couple points where I had some dry periods and I didn't write anything for a month. And you know, some some readers would go on there and they'd see uh, if they didn't have the change log, they wouldn't know like is this just abandoned or what? Uh, I don't know what the stati- statistics are on your end, but I know for myself, you know, if, if I start a book and there's not a lot of interest, I might never finish it. But somebody who buys the book might not know that. So I wanted to give them kind of that idea of this book is still active and I'm still working on it. And there's, there's an indicator on the page that says the last time it's been updated. Uh, but I also like giving a tangible uh, kind of guide for here's what's been updated. So if it were integrated into LeanPub itself, that, that might be nice. Um, I'd, I just want to make sure that there's a way like that that can be updated easily because it's it's really just for the reader to see here's what's changed. Here's what you might be interested in. Uh, and sometimes the readers, like I said, those dedicated readers would even go in the change log and they'd be like proofreading my changes for me. I don't know what drives them to do that, but they're awesome people. So thank that's you. That,
0: that's amazing. Um, you know that that i hadn't quite thought of that use of a changelog within a book before that it gives even if there's been a dry spell it gives you a very confident sense that this book is being worked on and how it's being worked on that the person's being rigorous about it um one idea we did have uh for our what we call our library which is where your lean pub books are kept you know which we now see in either in the browser or um in our uh uh ios app which is, which is still a, a baby, um, but that in that, you know, it's an interesting idea, like what does a library of in-progress books look like, right? And, and we were thinking one interesting feature might be, you know, if you clicked on a book and kind of opened it up, that you would see a timeline. Um, so it might be a line, and then there might be kind of little, you know, kind of circles along the line that would indicate when, you know, the author had made a sort of major... Improvement or something they thought was significant enough to surface in a timeline, and then click on it or something and see, basically, yeah, what those changes were. Um, so that was what we were thinking, something along yeah. those lines. But I, I take your point about how important it would be to actually have something like that in the book itself. Um, so that's something we'll we'll definitely think about because I would. Yeah, and, I,
1: I... and even even as motivation to me as an author, uh, I know one reason. I thought about uh, going with a traditional publisher was just the forced pressure of, of uh, you know, you have this deadline, you have to get the first draft in by here and that kind of stuff. Uh, without without those forced deadlines, you aren't really motivated sometimes to get through the hard parts. Uh, you know, there's some chapters in the book where it's, I'm writing it more because people need to know about it, not because I love it. And, you know, reading through the book, you might see a couple of those kind of sections. Uh, but, but having some sort of metric to show me, too, here's where I think I'm at and here's where I'm going, uh, that's pretty helpful. So I've even built my own little bash script that will count the words I've written in a given period and give me a nice little graph of it. Uh, so I can see, you know, I run it every month or so, and I just make sure that I haven't just dropped off completely in terms of how much I'm writing. Uh, it's, it's, as a writer, it's, you have to motivate yourself to write something. Even if it's horrible and you're going to throw it all out, if you're writing something, your brain keeps going and you keep uh, moving forward instead of just stopping. And and I know that from writing all the big blog posts I've done and all the articles I've written, uh, even if it's only a 500-word article, you can get stuck and then you just give it up. Uh, But if you just keep writing, uh, I think there was a blog post I did a couple weeks ago where I wrote it four times, I think, in full and deleted it each time because I'm like, this is just terrible. Uh, and then finally, it's like, ah, there we go. I have it. I feel that that's the right way.
0: Well, uh, it's a fantastic post. I mean, obviously, we noticed it right away. Um, and uh, yeah, when it comes to motivation, I wanted to, when I was just describing it to some of our uh, developers, the, the post, and one of the things I really liked about it was um, you talk about how successful your book has been, um, but you also talk about how much work went into it. Um, I think you said something like a thousand hours. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's close to that. And, uh, early on, I was very strict about tracking the hours. Now I've kind of dropped off and now it's like one evening I'll spend four hours on it. And the next night I spend zero. So, so there's, there's still, you know, five to 10 hours a week at this point, as I'm trying to get the book, uh, on Amazon and iBooks and a paperback and all that kind of stuff.
0: And did that, did those hours, did you include, I I forget, perhaps you did mention this in the post, but does that include time you spent marketing the book? Did did you spend any time marketing the book?
1: Yes. And I've actually spent pretty minimal time so far marketing the book. That's one thing where, you know, some developers can, I'll call it pimp themselves out. And I, I can't do that as much. Like it's, it's hard for me to do it, but I force myself to do it because if you don't do it at all, you're not going to get any sales. Uh, so, um, I, I've probably spent maybe two to 3% of my time on the book doing marketing uh, either talking with a couple different organizations, trying to get them to, uh, you know, promote the book internally uh, and working with a, f- a few groups that are doing similar um, or doing related Ansible projects, uh, trying to get get them to kind of cross promote the book a little bit. Um, but the main thing for me in terms of marketing has just been having a, tw- having a Twitter uh, feed just for the book. Um, and I had that early on. I think the first week I was writing the book, I created it. And that's, that's up to f- at least five or 600 followers. And that's been a good platform for getting people to retweet information about the book and getting reposts. But really, the number one thing has been that email list. Uh, early on, I had 50 or so people subscribed. And as the book has gone on and more people buy it on LeanPub, every time I do anything uh, through email, I get an immediate small spike in sales. You know, it it might be like one to two sales per day for a while, and then I'll do an email and it goes up to five to 10 for a few days. And so um, it seems like at least for things like books, reminding people, hey, this book is out here and here's a coupon for half off for your friends or something like that. Those are the things that get get the most in terms of tangible uh, spikes in sales. The other thing is getting closer to finish. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are less comfortable buying before the book was 70 or 80% finished. Uh, but once I reached some point, uh, the sales started going up a little bit to the point where it was more, um, uh, more steady over time. There weren't, there weren't little spikes here and there from the emails. It was more steady with a small spike.
0: Okay. And um, if, I'm curious, if you were approached by a conventional publisher who wanted to buy the rights to Ansible for DevOps, is that something you would consider doing?
1: it's something that i i would consider depending on what they're talking about uh one of the best advantages of having the book through leanpub and especially leanpub uh because it's really only the only platform that's like this is leanpub is really more about getting the book to the readers and it's not about making money for leanpub at least that's you know every organization that sells something you have to make some money and i get that but uh leanpub has the the least restrictive licensing terms the least restric- restrictive um, kind of operating agreement with authors, out of any place that I've seen, uh, short of just posting the book on GitHub, um, and so th- that's really what attracted me there. And and the fees are nominal, basically, and the the capability to take your book and and go to Create Space without having to do any extra work, uh, that alone is worth whatever fees that I'm paying, which is again pretty nominal for this book.
0: Um, yeah, just, just to be clear to anyone listening, um, we, we pay a royalty rate of uh, 90% minus 50 cents for every sale. So it's not exactly, it's not, we don't, what I'm trying to make clear is we don't actually charge authors fees. What we do is we take a cut of sales um, if they get any. Um, yeah. 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 And, um, and uh, yeah, so that's 10% minus 50 cents per sale.
1: Yeah. And, and another cool thing about the platform is it's, LeanPub seems to have a little more uptake with a technical audience. And so a lot of books on LeanPub are good opportunities to kind of work together with other authors. And so I have a few bundles that my book is in, and those bundles have also helped to uh, produce extra sales. Uh, So it's cool because sometimes a bundle, like somebody with another book in the bundle, we will promote their book and then I'll get a spike in my sales because people are like, oh, that's a cool book, but I don't care about this one. So um it's it's neat to have that. It's kind of an informal community of authors at Lean Pub.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Um yeah, we're our our work on community is something we really want to um want to focus on in the future. Um and yeah we have noted we've got a feature where if you're a Lean Pub author, you can reach out to another Lean Pub author. Um, and ask them to make a bundle with your book and they can accept or decline. Um and that way, yeah, people kind of can make connections with each other, especially if they share interests or specialties, and then they can kind of cross-promote. Um and it's a really it's a it can be a really fun, fun thing to do. Um uh I guess my last question for you is um is there anything that stands out in your experience with LeanPub that we could improve? I mean, is there anything that you know, wasn't there that it isn't there that you think should be there or something that's there that hasn't been done the right way? I mean, or if, you, or another way of putting it is, if you could have your ideal, you know, lean pub give me this one thing, what would, what would that be?
1: <laughs> I, th- I think one thing that would make things a little simpler for me is uh, the ability to more quickly preview changes, especially to the full book. Uh, if there were some sort of local tool that could produce a PDF copy, uh, so I could kind of have a, a continuous integration process for my own book—that would be cool. I wouldn't expect that because that's that's part like that's the bread and butter pipeline that probably takes the most work to maintain on Leanpub. So, uh, but that being said, the other thing that's been tough, and the reason why I asked for that is um, sometimes when I'm when I'm writing in Markdown, which is my preferred format uh, for for writing, uh, sometimes this the way that syntax behaves can be a little surprising and even when i look at the leanpub manual that there are some times where the examples don't exactly match up to what i'm trying to do or right now i think the leanpub manual has some formatting that's a little funky if you look at it in the front end in the browser um so things like when you put code blocks in lists with a certain language with text surrounding it with uh you know like indent multiple indentations in that list then those kind of things are where you find these little edge cases and you know, it, it just takes, it takes my brain a little bit out of the writing when I'm trying to work on the syntax stuff, uh, but the, the ability to quickly preview those things and uh, maybe even have like a tool that could show you, here's how it's going to look. Uh, you can like paste the sample in. that kind of thing would be cool. Uh, but, but the thing that I oh, like. Oh, that's
0: very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for that suggestion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that I like most about like in the time that I've been writing this LeanPub's interface has improved. At least three times in a major way to the point where uh it looks so fresh. Uh the, the author dashboard is is a lot easier to navigate and has more useful information on the front of it now. Uh when I started it was it was a lot of times I would go in there to change something and I would sit there and click through every single menu because there was no organization to it. Uh so now it's it's a lot easier to find like, oh, it's under writing and then this section. Um so yeah, that, that's been really helpful.
0: Thanks very much for that. That's that's really great feedback. Um, yeah, one the explanation for um, there's there's sort of a two part explanation to why Leanpub was that way and why it's been improving. Um, the first explanation is we're a bootstrap startup, so you know, Leanpub is our our baby that we you know would love to be spending, uh, you know, one hundred and ten percent of our time on, um, and uh, hopefully we will be um, in the future. Um, and the second explanation is we really believe very deeply in customer development. And so often adding a feature um, and making it work for an author who's desperately in need of it is more important than necessarily, you know, optimizing the design or organization of things. Um, but as we've grown more mature, we've been able to then focus when things become more stable, um, we've been able to focus more on like organizing things properly and presenting them well. Um so I'm glad to hear that the work we've been doing on that has actually has actually been an impro- yeah. been an improvement because you know when you're sitting on this side of things, you're often just, you know, you just hate yourself because things aren't perfect. <laughs> um so it's nice to hear nice to hear yeah. that. Um it's been much better. Okay. Well, um anyway, I just want to say um thank you very much for being on a Lean Publishing Podcast. This was a great discussion. Um and thanks for being a Lean Pub author.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.